Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the goodbye to all that edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. It is Wednesday, December 30th, as we record this on a rainy day in Washington. We are less than 48 hours away from wishing goodbye to really one of like the crappiest years yeah, I can riddance. remember. Oh, thank God it's almost over. I mean, really, it's just, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I wouldn't really know where to begin on the, <clears throat> my list of just crappy things that happened in 2015. Not to me personally. I feel like personally I'm fine, but uh, I'm really glad, glad to turn the page. I on mean, this I think any time you're dealing with a year whose major events include videoed beheadings, mm-hmm. which seems like a lifetime ago, by right? The way. And by the way, there were a bunch of them. I mean, yeah, or, like or one... half the entire population of a country being displaced. Yeah, yeah. we could have that right. on the list. Yeah, and when and when you've gotten bored of mass shootings. Yeah, and. Judy Dench died. Wait, what? Oh my God! When did Judy Dench die? Like two weeks ago. I didn't know that. I didn't know this. This is terrible. Oh, let's throw in the towel. Then. <laughs> <laughs> when did I? How did I miss this? I know it's awful. This is terrible. Okay, seriously. Seriously. That was like not that it's your fault. You didn't kill Judy Dench. I'm sorry. But that's be like the, the knife twisting. But she did. How did I miss this? On top of everything else. She did die at the end of uh, uh, of. You know, that last of James Bond movie. Dear God. Life imitates art. No kidding. Yeah, it's terrible. (sighs) I don't think I can do the podcast today, you guys. All right, we're done. Okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) No, we are going to do a podcast. Thanks for spending your New Year's Eve with the... I really hope this is not... Well, if this is your New Year's Eve, we're going to send you out with a bang. Um, We're going to do something a little bit different on the show today. Rather than our usual uh, wordplay followed by object lessons, we're going to do a year in review. Uh, We're going to each share what we thought was the most important, momentous, significant story of 2015 in the world of rational security. Uh, And then we're also going to talk about what we think is the most important story for next year. What is the big thing that we all have our eyes on or we individually have our eyes on that we think is going to be what we're talking about in 2016? Um, So, Ben, maybe maybe you want to start. Well, I think that the big event is uh, the rise of ISIS. And I, I think it's... Uh, you know, no particular attack or event so much as the fact that a year ago this organization was, I mean, we were still arguing about whether it was the JV. Right. Um, we were still arguing about, uh, you know, how to regard this sweep through territory. And now it has successfully established um you know, it has revolutionized the jihadi world. It has seized a very large swath of territory that encompasses two states. It has outposts in Libya, in Egypt, in Afghanistan, um, and it's way more successful than al-Qaeda ever was. 
And I think we need to have hats off to it. I think they've, they've really done a bang-up job this year, and um, I'm impressed with them. Okay, well, I will certainly agree that they are... Good job, Isis. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'd certainly agree that they're an important story. They might have been the most important story of 2014. Hmm. Well, they did but, better this year than they did in 2014. Yeah, but, but you know... But this is the year everyone paid attention, right? Yeah, and I mean, I'm I, mean, a, I, mean, I mean everyone, everyone. Right, maybe too much world. attention. I'm going to be a little heterodox on this one and say that, yes, ISIS is really important, but it's partly really important because a bunch of Western governments have decided that they need to treat it as a major national security threat. In fact, you know, U.S. government officials call it the most profound or the most urgent or the most... Um, the worst national security threat that we're facing, and I just don't know whether that's accurate or appropriate. I mean, it is certainly a driver of a lot of instability in the Middle East, but it's a driver of instability in the Middle East because the conditions in the Middle East enable that. And, you know, and, and yes, it has been able to generate some pretty devastating terrorist attacks on Western targets, but the West has faced terrorism before. So I, I'm not saying it's not important. It is important. Um, but I just don't... I wonder if we're not making more of it than we need to be in national security terms. Okay, so I want to make a case, a non-terrorism-based case, that this is a hugely important event. And it has to do with the disruption of the Westphalian... Uh, system and the borders of the Middle East as we've come to understand them. People associate this with Sykes-Picot. I don't... The history of where it comes from it seems to me to be less important than that here is an organization that says, we reject your stupid state system. Uh, we are uh, a caliphate, uh, we, which we define according to our own religious uh, uh, presuppositions. Um, we define it not at, in, in terms of a state with international obligations uh, like Syria or Iraq. We won't define its borders because we claim every, everywhere that Muslims live. And uh, you can become part of this state by associating your uh, local militia group with it. And that, I think, is a... And, and so that's the sort of crazy talk that if you do that uh, and nobody listens to you, it is not a significant event. Then you're, you know, Reverend Sun Young Moon or, or... But if you do that and the result is that you then seize territory that covers more than one state, this is not, you know, David Koresh in some outpost in... Um, in, in Waco, Texas. This is spanning two states with people in lots of other states pledging fealty to it. That strikes me as a very significant geopolitical event, even if you don't claim, even if you don't successfully engage in terrorism elsewhere at all. So I would agree it's a political challenge to the nation-state system that has dominated in the Middle East for the last century. Uh, but I don't think ISIS created that that set of challenges to the nation-state system. I think ISIS is opportunistically 
taking advantage of those challenges. Those challenges were created by the breakdown of these states. They were created by the sectarian and ethnic um, tensions that emerged into open violent conflict in the wake of the Iraq War and since. And, um, and I think ISIS is just one among a number of actors that are challenging that Sykes-Picot order in the Middle East. Um, and I think that if regional governments and, and outside governments were doing a better job of protecting basic security and providing basic governance and order in the Middle East, ISIS would be much less able to present that challenge. And it might not be, you know, as marginal in influence as Sung Yun Moon, but I, I don't think it would be as significant a threat. And this, you're hitting on something that I think that even maybe a bigger story than the rise of ISIS is the sort of, I hate to use the word permissive environment in which ISIS has come, you know, to, to take these large areas of territory. But it is a very permissive environment. But it is a permissive environment. environment. Like, I think it is a fact that if many nations of the region or the world just decided, you know what, at whatever cost to life and treasure we're going to do it, we're going to put this thing down. And if it means that we're going to be occupying this part of the world for 30 years, we're going to do that. Like, that capability exists. It is not as if these people are 100 feet tall. It is not an army of orcs that can't be destroyed. Like, they could be, right? And that people have made choices and calculated decisions, and many of those are coming back to bite us in the ass. But, like, I feel like its rise is not so much a phenomenon of, or like an example of this... You know, counter-argument to the Westphalian system as much as just maybe we're just not caring enough about it or we're learning to live with it in certain areas and, you know, we have a threshold for when we're going to get involved and when we're not and it's very situationally dependent and dependent in this country on our own politics. But if we wanted to stamp this thing out tomorrow, we could do it. If we were willing to provide alternative forms of governance. Yes, and pay but, the costs up front to do right. it. Right. Now, the one dimension in which I think you're on to something, Ben, in saying that this is a significant development politically is that is the the breadth of appeal um, of this set of ideas. The fact that ISIS has managed to win adherence from sub-Saharan Africa and Europe and apparently California. Um, and that, I, I think, is novel and interesting. The question, I guess, is how, fr from a security perspective, how significant is it? So I, I think you're totally understating it because it's not just the number of adherents to the group that have spread all over the world. It's also the counter-reaction among previously mainstream people so that you now have a viable possibility that France could elect Marine Le Pen. You have in the United States Donald Trump, who openly campaigns against Muslims, being the leading contender to be the Republican nominee. These things would not have happened prior to the rise of ISIS. You and think the outsider campaigns in the Republican Party wouldn't exist but for ISIS? I, think, I mean, Marine Le Pen, I'll give you, but I'm not so sure about Donald I, Trump. I think there would have been outsider uh, candidacies. There are always outsider candidacies. I think the receptivity to of Western populations to frankly anti-Muslim appeals is to a large degree a reaction against geopolitical conditions that ISIS has done a lot to set. And so I think they are not merely setting the agenda in, you know, Raqqa they're to some degree managing to set the agenda in, in a lot of other places to, uh, 
including here. But, uh, and but, I, think, I think you just really risk understating what their impact is. But Donald Trump, to be sure, would have opportunistically found some other enemy or grievance to use to exploit to his own political advantage. He's very good at that. In that sense, not so different than ISIS. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very interesting point. They do feed off each other. He doesn't he in, in Trump's defense, he hasn't... Metaphorically, he beheads people beheaded once a people. week on that hit TV show. <laughs> you are fired, Shane. You're beheaded. Harris. You're beheaded. Yeah, metaphorically speaking, and of course there's a vast difference. But I, you know, but I, I do think that the action-reaction cycle is, is an interesting one. And, you know, to what extent do the, does the way that the U.S. government and other governments react... Um, feed what you're talking about, Ben, which is something maybe we can come back to later on. Um, I will share my most important story because I think it feeds off of or it plays into you know what Ben was just talking about. Um, I think the most important story of 2015 uh, was the attacks in Paris. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I think which I just want to point out is a subset. It oh, is a subset. So therefore, mine trumps <clears throat> yours. That's true. Well, you're speaking in broad generalities, but I, being you know the working journalist as opposed to the defrocked one, speak Ooh. in specificities. Ooh. But that's okay for people Gauntlet who write editorials. Gauntlet thrown. That's fine. Okay. You know, I have to provide new information to people. Yeah, yeah. Go uh, on, provide some new information. <laughs> I'm a river to my people. Um, no, but I think that, so, I think that for a couple of reasons. One, I think it changed a lot of assumptions, and including mine, about ISIS's goals and ambitions. I think that there were, and I have said this on the podcast many times, where I distinguish between Al-Qaeda and ISIS by saying that the latter was this group that had essentially territorial ambitions and wanted to create its little state and be left alone. And it actually, it turns out that's not at all true. It wants to blow up airplanes and kill people in Western cities, just like Al-Qaeda does as well, or at least has figured out how to somehow inspire this and then claim credit for it, you know, a la the Joker and the you know, in Batman. Um, but, but I also think why it's more significant to the, 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 the significance of that story is that there was a moment in reporting that story in the first 72 hours or so where it felt like, at least for me, we were supposed to be saying, well, this changes everything, right? This has reset the table. This is 9-11 in Europe. This has changed everything. And what I came away from those attacks thinking was, actually, it didn't change that much at all. And that resiliency was actually the big takeaway from that event, which is not to say that it hasn't changed the political tenor in Europe. It's not to say that there weren't significant consequences, but it is not like society shut down. The, the open border system did not completely go away. There are challenges to it. I'm not trying to understate that. But I was impressed by the fact that both in this country and there, life went on. You think we've learned a thing or two since 9-11? I, I think we have learned a thing or two since 9-11, and I think that the San Bernardino attacks, frankly, reinforced a lot of that. And there would have been every reason after those attacks for you know, anyone and everyone who wanted to usher in their new set of reforms and declare you know, we should be having some massive crackdown in this country, or every nightmare you could have imagined that we're all waiting for when the next big one happens. Somebody could have turned San Bernardino into that if they wanted to, and it didn't happen. And I think it's because maybe it's because we're in order to mass shootings, but also I think we've just figured out that you know these are momentary events, and they they're, they're, they are rare in the grand scheme of things. Jay Johnson gave a very overlooked speech at Westminster College this year, where he essentially said to people, "Stop freaking out about terrorism. You know your chances of dying in a plane crash are greater than your chances of dying in a mass shooting or a terrorist attack." 
And very few politicians have been brave enough to stand up and say what I think we all intuitively know, which is that these things are awful. They have the potential for big political consequences, but I don't really think they change our daily life on a, on a fundamental level. I don't think Paris did. I don't think San Bernardino did. And to me, that was sort of the big, the big story of 2015. Well, I, you know, I really hope you're right. I think that's a hopeful story to focus on. Um, and I hope you're right, partly because if we have learned something since 9-11, then it might help us prevent ourselves from making some of the errors and the overreaches um, that I think can be driven by the political consequences, outsized political consequences of these types of attacks. The thing about San Bernardino, I think, that felt so scary to so many Americans is that it really just, well, if, if these two, this married couple with a little baby who lived down the street from, you know, everyone we know uh, could do this, then anyone could do it. You know, anyone in our neighborhood could do it. Anyone in any city in America could do it. And that was very freaky um, t for a lot of people. And so I, I think it tempts politicians and the public toward those sorts of overreactions. And so I hope you're right that the dominant trend is one of greater resilience. I think we, we have yet to see, maybe. So I, I want to push back a little bit. I largely agree with you. I, I do think whenever one of these events happens... We have the, the world will never be the same again. And then the world is the same relatively quickly, maybe with backscatter machines instead of, you know, magnetometers. Um, but I do think there's a few uh, points that are important. You know, Paris didn't just shut down, but Brussels did. And, for days. And, and yeah. has, in fact, canceled their New Year's Eve fireworks celebration yeah, as and, we speak. We've learned that. And so I think, you know, looking narrowly at uh, the behavior of Parisians, um, you know, might be too focal, you know, might, might focus in too narrowly. And there really are places where life is really quite disrupted. Um, the second thing is that, you know, if I were the Islamic State, um, and I'm sure they're smart enough to be asking this question, I would be asking the question, how many times do you need to do this? In what degree of succession? In what, you know, what does the periodicity of the curve need to be before the resilience doesn't kick in, right? And you do affect really permanent changes to the society. And rather than trying to do one giant attack. You want to do the kind of re repeat performances that become profoundly disruptive. Um, and I think that's, you know, from the terrorist point of view, that's the big challenge. And from the societal resilience point of view, it's preventing, you can recover from anything if it happens once, right? It's what happens when it happens once a month. What happens right. when it happens once every two weeks? Well, one could answer that question with respect to mass shootings in this country. It happens almost every day, and we just absorb it. Um, well, so number one, I don't mass true mass shootings do not happen every day. They happen at least once a month. I mean, we, you know, sh sh shootings in which r people are randomly shooting Large, you know, random strangers in public places are, you know, an every few month thing. And I'm amazed that we absorb it the way we do. Um, 
and maybe that's the answer. Maybe you can you can handle uh, terrorism that way. I think if I were the Islamic State, I would want to be pushing that and seeing like can I push the resilience of the society? It doesn't have to be a hundred people at a time, but could you? Can you do it every two weeks? Well, I think this raises a really interesting question, which is why ISIS. Um, has moved in this direction. And I think we still don't know whether, you know, the Paris attacks and so on were more opportunistic or more sort of directed with a a theory in mind or a plan in mind to kind of up the ante with respect to Western governments and provoke a certain kind of response. Clearly, they have provoked a more aggressive uh, approach by a number of Western governments, and they seem to be relishing that, judging by Baghdadi's latest statement. Um, but I, I think without understanding more about why they value this, we don't know what their next step in upping right. the ante will be. And I don't think we really know. I mean, there was an announcement this week about a supposed, you know, director of external operations for ISIS that knew one of the Paris attackers that the Pentagon said had been killed in an airstrike. I think he was one of three or four directors of external operations that was that were announced in this sort of rollout of 10 people that we'd said we've killed, which, I mean, I think that we just Does don't... Does that take Senate approval? Senate confirmation? There are three-year terms right. if you live that long. It's like a FISA judge. Yeah, yeah, you become oh, director emeritus of external <laughs> operations for ISIS, yeah. Uh, but I don't really think that we know. I mean, I think that there, I mean, I, 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 I believe that there are people trying very hard to figure that out. Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that we don't know and we don't really have a sense, and that there was, I think, you know, as I alluded to earlier, kind of a mischaracterization of what ISIS's goals were, that to me is actually in a way scarier than the acts themselves, mm-hmm. because we know how to respond to mass shootings. But we don't know how to respond to the thing that we can't predict or, like, or, or you know, we, when we don't have a good answer as to why they do it or how they do it. I also think that I will put one caveat on the resiliency aspect. If the attacks become ones that involve chemical weapons, biological agents, radioactive material, God forbid a small nuclear device, that changes everything. I think the modalities of these acts are something that we become accustomed to. And it's like, well, it's just mass shootings. We see that all the time. Even though it can kill between 12 and 100 people, that's a pretty big range. But you throw, you know, you know, radioactive isotopes into the mix, and then I think people really start to be very, very afraid well, because of the form. novelty of this. Right. That's another way of upping the ante. Right. right. Exactly. I also think there's a difference between mass shootings and mass shootings. I mean, one lone guy with a gun, is, it's a terrible, terrible event, but it doesn't change your world as a political culture. On the other hand you know, an assault team like yeah. you had in Multiple Paris. locations. Multiple right. locations, multiple attackers, or even uh, Dylan Klebold, Eric, what's his name, Columbine yeah. situation like you then saw in, in uh, San Bernardino, a husband and wife team. People working together are more powerful than the sum yeah. of the individuals. And, you know, uh, you get a SWAT team that's trying to kill as many people as possible, and that's a that's a different scale operation. Well, hence 9-11. I mean, right? I mean, that's it. 9-11 turns the world on its axis because of the nature of the, the, the spectacle. The coordination and the complexity. Right, right. And it yeah. seems to me Al-Qaeda has certainly gotten this, and it can't be long before ISIS, you know, they're already there. So, yeah. yeah. 
your most important story of 2015 yeah, tomorrow? Well, so you both focused on things that, that were in some sense novel. And my most important story is actually more classic geopolitics. My most important story of 2015, I think, is the Russian military intervention in mm. Syria. And of course, Russia had been supplying and, and providing political support to the Bashar al-Assad regime ever since the uprising began in 2011. But on September 30th of this year, uh, Russia began its own airstrikes in Syria. And I think it's, it's a really important story for three reasons that go well beyond Syria itself. The first reason is what it says about Russia's military resurgence, um, that this isn't just cheap saber rattling, that this is a military that has modernized and rebuilt since the end of the Cold War. It's not a paper tiger anymore. They've demonstrated new capabilities, this long-range deployment um, into Latakia, the long-range cruise missiles that they mm -hmm. shot from the Caspian into the Syrian theater. Um, and we knew that Putin had made new investments in procurement and training for the Russian military, and now we see the payoff. It's a more effective Russian military, and that, I think, is a broader concern. Um, and I note that Russian military spending is at 4.2% of GDP, which is very healthy That's and big. far outstrips any of our European partners who can't even get up to 1% in Particularly in the context of, of shrinking GDP. Right. In the, right. So it's even more notable in the context of shrinking GDP. In one Russian day GDP. they flew a, a sortie over uh, Syria with 25 long-range bombers. Right. Which was one of the biggest single sorties in decades. So it's important because of what it says about Russia's military capability and the credibility of it. It's important because so far this military intervention is not, as the White House kept labeling it, likely to be Putin's Vietnam, a quagmire that would drag the Russians down, and the arc of history will, you know, show that the Russians were wrong and the U.S. was right. It seems three months in that Putin knew what his objectives were, and he seems to be achieving them. He's shored up. Um, he's halted the, uh, the blood flow um, in terms of the Syrian regime's loss of territory on the ground. He's changed the political balance of power such that the diplomatic efforts to resolve the crisis now are largely driven by Russian preferences and concerns, the inclusion of Iran, the preference for keeping Assad around for a while. The United States has acquiesced in all of this. So Putin's gambit has worked, I think, largely for his purposes, and it's partly because he knew what he wanted, and the United States, I think, largely did not. The only thing that was clear in U.S. policy is that it wanted not to get involved in a quagmire of its own in Syria, and Putin has facilitated um, Would rather be in a quagmire with someone else? Right. And then the third reason I think it's important, this story, is it shows us that this resurgent, aggressive Russia is not just about Crimea. It's not just about Georgia. In other words, it's not just about Russia's near abroad. This is Russia acting in a very assertive way, well outside its borders. And um, I don't know that that means Russia wants to, you know, get back into the job of providing order and stability in the Middle East. God knows nobody wants that job right now. But I do think it says something about Russia's broader global role that the United States needs to pay attention to. So here's the question, though. Um, if you looked at, at the end of 2002, when the U.S. had just gotten rid of Saddam Hussein and we were cleaning stuff up in Iraq. 2003, yeah. 2003, sorry. And we were cleaning stuff up in Iraq. 
um, you could have given a very similar biggest story of the year is, you know, U.S. dominance of Iraq and um, this very successful intervention quickly ousted Saddam Hussein. Um, and now the question is, you know, where do we turn from here? Does this go south for Putin? Uh, or are, and are, we're just looking at it from, you know, the top of the, the hill before he starts rolling down the other side? Or is this a, um, you know, a, a, is this a successful intervention that's going to look as good a year from now as it does today? So that's a great question. I think it'll be determined by two things. One is the battlefield dynamics, and the United States has very little ability to impact those. It's more about to what extent are the Saudis and the Turks and the others willing to step up support for rebel forces on the ground to counteract, in some sense, the impact of the Russian intervention. But the other thing that will determine this is what happens at the negotiating table in Vienna. And there, the United States government seems to be acting in a way that is determined to help this work out for Russia uh, and help them, you know, get out of a potential quagmire. Now, if this diplomatic process breaks down, the war goes on, uh, the allies of, of the Syrian rebels um, provide significant support, and the Russians do find themselves in a military quagmire, you know, then we're, then that's a different story. But the Obama administration seems very invested in making the Vienna process a success. Yeah, Assad can stay as long as he wants, right? Or long enough. You know, maybe 18 months, you know, maybe two years. Vladimir, and nobody's, what do you think? Nobody's got a good replacement for him anyway, and nobody can tell us how these elections that are going to happen are, are ever going to work. So um, I, I think that already the U.S. and its partners have conceded the most important ground that was structuring this diplomatic process. You'll know, you'll know that the final uh, nail is in the coffin when the words loya jerga get spoken. <laughs> um, fortunately, I don't think you find that tradition in, uh, in uh, Syrian history. I think you're right to, to separate those two things. I mean, it seems just watching the, the presidential debates, which I've you know, suffered through a few of them now, one thing that seems very interesting is that people talk a lot about the battlefield dynamics in terms of taking the fight to ISIS. You don't hear the candidates talking a lot about the political solution and Assad. I mean, actually, Trump has been the one that's closest to Obama, right? It's let's take the fight to ISIS, but, you know, Assad, we have to deal with him later. Well, it's a separate Trump issue. Trump is the closest to Putin. I mean, <clears throat> I thought it was interesting, actually, the extent to which the moderator has pushed the Republican candidates on the this issue of should Assad stay or go, and there were some real divisions between them on that question. All right, so now we're going to talk about what we think is the most important story for next year. We've alluded to things that are coming, obviously, in the next year, but Ben, what is the big story for 2016? All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say... Encryption, big... no. No, no, no. <laughs> the big story for 2015 is the rise of ISIS, the big story for 2016 is going to be the fading and collapse of ISIS. Oof. Wow. Um, I think, this is the bold predictions edition. I think edition. this is the bold predictions edition. I think, the, I think ISIS is overstretched. I think the fact that the Iraqi government is, seems to be able to take Ramadi from them suggests that their, uh, their hold on the places that they have a hold on is... Uh, Deep is is wide but deep, 
And I think a lot of the militia groups that are pledging allegiance to them uh, are just the same militia groups in other parts of the world that were fighting anyway. And so I think their, their reach is actually less than it looks. Uh, and I think uh, a few major defeats, uh, and I suspect they have actually taken some pretty serious damage uh, over the last few, few months. And so I'm going to go out on a limb and say uh, I don't think we're going to be having a, a third year of boy ISIS is impressive at the end of next year. Wow. Well, from your mouth to God's ears, as they say. Yeah, yeah. It's entirely possible. Uh, my most important for story for 2016, again, following a pattern, taking this subset, perhaps, of, of your grandiose predictions. Uh, I think the big story of 2016, at least the early part, is going to be uh, the fight to take back Mosul uh, in Iraq. Um, so we saw the quote-unquote liberation of Ramadi, which is like sort of liberated, not entirely. There's still some ISIS there. Mo- mostly liberated. Mostly liberated. There's an Iraqi flag flying over Ramadi again. Uh, and now, Mostly cor- liberated by Shia militias? Mostly liberated, as it turns out, no, actually, by Iraqi counterterrorism forces. All right. Which were trained by our special ops guys and local Sunni fighters. Right. It looks like a body actually said to the Shiites, thou shall not pass on and, this one. And I think, I think that actually cuts back to my point in an important way. This is the first time that you've seen uh, the Sunni tribesmen yeah. take on ISIS and they pushed them out of Ramadi. And I think that's, you know, significantly harkens back to sort of Sunni awakening. 2007, and, and exactly. And when, yeah. when the Sunni awakening happened, it happened, you know, from the outside, it looked like it happened all of a sudden. Yeah. And there was a lot of groundwork that had to be laid for that. Um, but then when it came to fruition, it came to fruition fast. Yeah. And that's part of the reason that I, I, I predicted the thing that I predicted. And this is where I think Mosul then, exactly, if all of these these components, these ingredients sort of fall into place, it portends very positively, I think, for potentially taking back Mosul. Although, as one person put it to me this way, this week, comparing, taking Ramadi and Mosul is like comparing apples and fish. You know, it's a a bigger city. It's it's more entrenched. It's more important to ISIS. it's the real test case, It's the real test case. Yeah. Yeah, and I think people would look at it even for the test case of something like Raqqa. Mm -hmm. But if, if in fact, you know, Iraq can kind of get its things together, and importantly, you have to be able to hold Ramadi while you then move on to ISIS... This, I think, you just put it exactly right, is the test case for how close we are to actually getting, defeating ISIS. And could you actually imagine a crushing of this movement and a taking back of this well, territory? Well, so it's a test on that score. It's also a test of Abadi's political um, renovation of the yeah. project of Iraq and whether Iraq can hold together. And, you know... One of the things I'm watching to see after the the um, conquest of Ramadi is the attitude of the Arab states, especially the Gulf states, toward this Iraqi central government and whether they continue on what has been a very, very tentative path of providing additional support, you know, reopening their diplomatic missions and having visits and things like that, because this is part of what will give those Sunni Iraqis um, some sense that this government is going to work for them and that others with their interests at heart uh, are invested in the project. Yeah. And your big story for 2016? Well, what so... What are we all going to be talking you know, about? Wait, 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 before we get to it, we have to say also, from your mouth 
to God. Oh, us. well, yeah, because yeah. we're, we're talking all the time, he and I. Right. I'm, I'm glad you guys are in such good touch with the, the high one up there. I have to say that um, my prediction for a big story in 2016 it goes cuts against um, the momentum of your two predictions. I think that we are going to see uh, an ISIS inspired, maybe even in some sense, ISIS-directed attack on Israeli targets Ooh. and territory. And I think that this is going to be a game-changer in the region uh, in the fight against ISIS, because we've just seen over the last week um, a message from al-Baghdadi. You know, He's said things like this before. We haven't forgotten about Palestine and you know, you Zionists were coming closer to you every day. He said stuff like that before. Um, but what was interesting to me are two things. Number one, that a, a senior Saudi cleric responded almost immediately saying, no, ISIS are the Zionists. In other words, feeling vulnerable enough on the issue of Palestine that he had to one-up Baghdadi on uh, fealty to the Palestinian cause wow. by calling ISIS Zionists. So to me, that suggests that the, that the, the uh, Gulf states and the Arab states are feeling a lot of sensitivity and vulnerability on this issue. That makes it more tempting for ISIS, just as they bombed Shia mosques in Kuwait to try and provoke the Sunni Arabs. They're going to they're gonna try and attack uh, on the Palestinian front to provoke the Sunni Arabs. And the other thing that's disturbing about this to me, and that's changed this year, is the decline of Palestinian governance. And going back to what we were talking about before, ISIS thrives on this environment of weak and failing states. And there has been a Palestinian authority in the West Bank working closely with Israeli security to maintain order, to keep jihadis out, to even keep Hamas from getting a foothold in the West Bank. And in Gaza, Hamas itself has done a very good job of trying to keep ISIS out of the Strip. Um, but ISIS keeps trying, and these governments are failing. They're not delivering Palestinian statehood. They're not even delivering effective resistance against the Israelis. Um, the, uh, the, the terrorist attacks that Israelis have faced over the last several months have been lone wolf attacks. Uh, and I think all of this suggests a more permissive environment, as you put it earlier, Shane, for ISIS to try and recruit Palestinians to attack Israelis. And when this happens, the Sunni states are going to have a very hard time responding effectively to it. It's going to drive a major Israeli-Palestinian crisis. It will drive America's re-engagement into the Israeli-Palestinian arena right after President Obama essentially swore off this issue for the rest of his term. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm not looking forward to it, but I think it's likelier than not. And military intervention by Israel when that happens? Uh, well, it depends on the nature of the attack. If it's an attack that takes place inside Israeli territory, uh, then the Israelis are going to have to figure out how to respond. If it's an attack that originates somehow from Palestinian territory, either in Gaza or in the West Bank, I think there's going to be very strong public pressure in Israel for a major military intervention. So a few... Uh Points. I was just in Israel along these border, these various borders, and a few data points related to Tamara's prediction. I think all of which uh, support uh, what you just said. Uh, number one, from Gaza, uh, while we were there, um, the 
there had there were a number of I actually saw one of these launches that uh, Iron Dome intercepted while I was driving. Um, and um, the, oh, really? Like yeah, the, yeah. It actually happened. They when, didn't do it just for you. No, no, no. Okay. It was not a demonstration. Um, and um, the ISIS keeps trying to launch rockets from Gaza, and the Israelis are responding every time with a kind of pound sand uh, um, airstrikes that are designed not to hit anything but just to remind Hamas that they're responsible for keeping ISIS under control. So there's this weirdly choreographed dance where ISIS gets a launcher, launches something. The Israelis respond not by hitting Hamas, but by reminding Hamas that they can hit them. And Hamas does some stuff to keep ISIS under control. On the other hand, uh, there were reports while we were there that the uh, one of the heads of ISIS in the uh, um, in the Sinai region had gone by tunnel into Gaza, and there had been a meeting between the ISIS people and the Hamas people. So there's some degree of negotiation, some degree of coordination uh, on the Syrian border now. And I actually took a picture of this um, from a single spot on the Israeli side of the Golan line. You can now see. Syrian government territory on the left. Um, on the far left, uh, Free Syrian Army territory. And on the right, Nusra territory. And you can see it in one scape. And there are... Uh, you Nusra can, being the al-Qaeda affiliate right, in beh Syria. Behind Nusra, there's ISIS territory. But you actually can't see that uh, with the naked eye. So on that border... You have uh, a lot of the options, you know, if, if Nusra has not shown a lot of interest in attacking Israel, but if ISIS uh, comes in uh, closer, I, it's definitely a very plausible thing. And then finally, on the Lebanese border, which we also, I also visited, you know, Hezbollah is really dug in there. And, and Nasrallah recently also said, uh, again, it's a legitimacy thing with the leaders of these organizations that they have, they have plans to do a major attack in northern Israel in the next X block of time. Now, Nasrallah says that a lot. But I think there are a lot of scenarios in which what Tamara describes, either from Gaza or from Lebanon or from, you know, the Golan, could happen. You're making me revise my prediction, <clears throat> a new one, that 2016 is going to be just as shitty as 2015. Oh. Now it's going to see the defeat of ISIS. Strategic. I don't know. You, you've laid out a menu of options of terribleness. <laughs> Depressing <laughs> options. What fresh hell will 2016 bring us? Tune in next week. Hey, it's our, <laughs> uh, before we go, though, yeah. it's our birthday. Is we have it? now been in business. Rational Security has now been gone a full year. Is it our full year birthday? Yeah, we started what? right after the new year we're of year 2015. We're, we're wow. Oh. Are you going to sing us happy birthday, Shane? I don't think you want that. Haven't we been through enough this year? And <laughs> what did we get for our birthday? We got a new audio setup. We well, did get a new audio well, setup. Tell us how it's doing. Yeah, we, we're trying something very new audio-wise thanks to Carl in the Brookings studio. Who Thank came you, Carl. Up, Thank who you, gave Carl. Up, gave us a, a wonderful consultation about how we could respond to all of your complaints about our low audio quality. So we're hoping this week is better and 2016 
better will be yet. the year of good audio. Yeah, I'm so I'm sad that we might be giving up the garage band aesthetic, but we hear you even if you don't hear us all the time so well. <laughs> <laughs> um, that does bring us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You of course can find links to past shows on spaghettionthewallproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. When you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a nice rating and comments. And remember to tell us exactly what you like about the show, what you don't. Your comments about the audio have really helped us to make the show better, and we're really excited about that. And thank you for uh, being uh, engaging with us and letting us know about that. Otherwise, we wouldn't know, because I personally don't listen to this show. We love our listeners. Tweet at us. We'll tweet back. <laughs> the podcast is edited, as always, by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by this exciting new breakout trio. I don't know if you've heard of them. But they've just been recording. Um, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Vladimir Putin, and Donald Trump. And they have wow. a new edition of Old Lang Syne that's just come out just in time for the New Year's holiday. It's really lovely. It's in three languages. See? He's singing. Wow. Yeah, but do you know the words? No one knows the words of that song. <laughs> Isn't that a Robert Burns poem? Is it? Should old acquaintance no? Should old acquaintance be forgot in days of old lang syne? Blah blah. We'll blah, drink blah, a cup blah, of blah, something yada, with yada, Vladimir yada, Putin yada, and Donald yada, Trump. Yada. <laughs> Wait, Judy Dench is not dead. She's not dead. It was a hoax. I'm so mortified. <gasps> Oh my God! And yet, Tamara just found this on her on her iPhone. Judy Dench means, killed an internet hoax. Yes, what this means the, is that it's a Christmas miracle. Woo! The Dench Lives edition. It is, and that means 2015 did not completely suck. It did not. Oh, Judy, we love you, Judy. Oh. Judy Dench lives. Our music is performed by Judy Dench, <laughs> with help from Sophia Yan. <laughs> well, on that positive, hopeful note, thank God. There's nothing like a dame. I'm Shane Harris. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, thank you for listening. Happy New Year, and we will see you in 2016. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.